Happy Monday. We made it. You know how you make it to the weekend? I know we're not as excited to get to Monday, but still, you made it through the weekend. That is fantastic. Hopefully you enjoyed yourself this past weekend. We didn't necessarily have the weather that made it overly enjoyable. Um, We're going to talk not so much about weather, but we are going to talk about a number of different things to get us started on a week. Here's a question. Where's your recycling really going? When you put stuff in the blue bin and when you put it out to the curb, and if you're somebody who has a green bin and you put that out to the curb or you have a gray bin, you just put out bins and hope that the right colored truck comes along, where's that going? Well, it's going to the recycling facility. Absolutely it is. Where's it going from there? Well, it's going... To be repurposed, because that's a big word. Okay, is it though? How much of it is? Since China decided we don't want to be the world's toilet, remember that line? We don't want to be the world's dumping ground. No more of your garbage coming to our house. Yeah, uh, since that happened, things things are a, a little tough. Landfills are a little bit more full. Uh, there's big lines of big plastic piles in different places. Out west in Saskatchewan, it could become a tourist attraction. We don't want that. So what do we do about this? Well, it may come down to what can we do, not so much what can be done outside of our own fingertips, but what can we actually do. And we're going to get to that topic in about an hour from now. 7,000 people roughly have used assisted dying legislation and have died in this country. We're now looking at the number of deaths in this country. If you break them all down, 1% of them come through assisted dying. So you did not die on your own. You were assisted. Is that a lot? We've had assisted dying legislation for three years. Is that 7,000? What does that break down to? About you know, just under 2,500 a year? 2,300? Is that a lot? I don't know. I have no idea if that's a big number. So we're going to ask that question in a half hour from now. We are also hopefully going to talk some BRT because here's what I think we need to do. We need to step back. This is not about, oh, this should be done and that should be done and do this first. And That period of time is over. That has expired. So now they are going forward. Things are being presented to the Ministry of Transportation, and it's going to be a green light. Go ahead. Okay, if that's the case, what are we doing? Hmm? What are we doing? What do you mean, what are we doing? What is it? What have they actually decided on? Can you pinpoint that? I can't. I think it's going to work to the Wait, the east? West. No, wait. North. No, not north. Definitely not West. East. I don't know. So we'll try and paint that picture all over again, just so that we have our heads around this. We're going to talk about the Guelph Storm and the Saginaw Spirit going to a Game 7 tonight. But to begin things, I'm going to ask a question that we'll have to run throughout the entire show. There was a great conversation that I went eavesdropping on in the 980 CFPL newsroom today. And that conversation had to do with someone who had never seen an episode of The Simpsons before. Simpsons has been on for 30 years. But hey, that happens. I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. 
Don't plan on watching one anytime soon. Sorry. Have other things to do. Snow Queen, Winter is Coming, This Clan, uh, Dragons. No, don't. Uh, that's not making me want to watch. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not into dragons, clans, and I don't like it when Winter's coming. So, tell you the truth, I have no desire to watch a show that reminds me about Winter coming. I know, I know, I'm missing the point. But Simpsons? It's been hard to avoid, but possible. And I don't knock anybody who has stayed away from something saying, I'm not watching whatever that cartoon is with the kid with the skateboard who used to say, have a cow, man. Bart Simpson doesn't still say that. I don't watch The Simpsons anymore. I found it stopped being funny. But here's the question. Jess Brady's mom is fantastic, but has never seen an episode of The Simpsons. If you were going to suggest an episode of The Simpsons for her to watch that would encompass the brilliance of the show, what episode would you put in front of Jess Brady's mom? That's my question today. Would it be this one? That's a quiet episode. It's a very quiet episode. No? It wouldn't? Okay. How about this one? Hmm. We'll figure ourselves out in just a little bit, and we'll be able to get those examples for you. Because you can start thinking of them, guaranteed. What episodes would they be? What would you put down in front of Jess Brady's mom to say, you want to know what The Simpsons is all about? This this is what The Simpsons is all about. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. If you want, you can give us a call, 519-643-2222, and we'll put together a list. It'll end up being that old best of The Simpsons, won't it? I'm pretty sure it will. We are also going to talk about a good news and kind of good news day at the London International Airport. It's a good news day for one reason, and then eh, not for another one. So we'll have that two-sided story coming up in just a little bit. We are underway on a Monday. We'll take a quick break. I will try and get those Simpsons examples for you in just a moment. But if you have one, 519-643-2222, or you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Okay, we've got a couple suggestions coming in on which Simpsons episode you would have someone watch first. If they've never seen a single episode of The Simpsons, and it's only been around for 30 years, so the odds of missing it are pretty good. It happens, though. You choose not to watch that? That's not a problem. Got a lot of things to do, but it can be a very enjoyable show right from the start. You could watch all 30 years. I don't even know how. Like, how long would that take? That's 13 hours for about 30 years. Hang on. Let me do some 13 hours for 30 years, 390 hours of The Simpsons. I guess you could boil them down to about 20 minutes, but humor me. Watch the commercials. So that would be 16 and a quarter days straight in order to binge watch the entire Simpsons catalog. If you had a favorite... If you had one that you think would be the Simpsons episode to watch before any others, would it be this one? So remember, call Mr. Plow. That's my name. That name again is Mr. Plow. Or how about this one? Oh, it's not for you. It's more of a Shelbyville idea. Now, wait just a minute. 
We're twice as smart as the people of Shelbyville. Just tell us your idea and we'll vote for it. All right. I tell you what I'll do. I'll show you my idea. I give you the Springfield monorail. <gasps> I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook. And by gum, it put them on the map. So, there's two examples. Jude has said Flaming Mo. Chris has said the power plant baseball team. I guess it's softball team, right? Yeah. So, power plant softball team. Joining us in studio right now is Craig Needles, who you can hear from 9 until noon each and every day. And if you – Craig has talents like you wouldn't believe. He is able to quote more parts of Simpsons episodes than I've ever heard anyone be able to quote word for word. I mean, you can do it flawlessly. Where does this stuff come from? I don't know. I've watched the show once. Uh, <laughs> no, I've, I've watched it many, many times. Uh, it turns out when you have a young, impressionable brain, you can really pick up stuff. Uh, some people pick up languages and math. I picked up the quotes uh, from the Simpsons from seasons like three through ten. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. And those were some of the best seasons. Now, that, yeah. you now have children, or you have a child and you're about to have children. What exactly... Uh, would you say is the right age for them to start watching Simpsons? Have you thought that one? That's a tough one. Well, my daughter's one and a half and has already seen a lot of Simpsons. Okay, then you made that decision. <laughs> Very nice. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see when she gets a little older and starts to talk. If I want her to tell me to uh, not have a cowman or something, but uh, uh, for now it's okay. Power plant softball team, flaming mo, Mister Plow, monorail. They would be there if you had to, because you do have a certain ability to, you know, look back through some key episodes. If you had to pick one episode for somebody to watch as their first episode of The Simpsons, can you narrow it down to just one? Uh, I'll say a, a personal episode that I'd have people watch and then the one that I think is kind of the what, what encompasses most of the show. My personal favorite is Homer Goes to College, which is an episode written by Conan O'Brien. Uh, Homer has to go to college because he uh, is deemed to be not competent to be a safety inspector at a nuclear plant, which makes all the sense in the world. He should not be doing this. Uh, so that's a, a fantastic episode. There's a lot of great gags in that in that episode. Uh, but to me, the episode that I think just encompasses the brilliance of the show, and if we're talking about Jess Brady's mom here, I think this one would kind of hit home for her because there's a lot of union jokes and that matters in that household. Uh, last exit to Springfield, when Homer becomes the head of the power plant union and Mr. Burns decides to strike at Springfield by, in the midst of the power plant strike, shutting down the electricity to the entire city in order to... Right. Yeah. Is that the one with dental plan? Lisa that, needs braces. There we go. That would be that episode. Uh, that to me is not only perhaps the best Simpsons episode, but when it comes to like 22 minutes of television, that might be the best 22 minutes of television anyone's ever put together. It is just a, like line for line, word for word, shot for shot. It is a brilliant, brilliant episode of television. And that's the episode I would pick would be Last Exit to Springfield. Craig Needles in studio with us as we look at one Simpsons episode. If you had to narrow it down to one to have somebody watch who had never seen the show before, what would it be? So Homer goes to college and Last Exit to Springfield. Do you still find the show has the the same kind of magic every once in a while or I, I you know what it's hard for me to say I, ba I I honestly don't think I've watched like a new episode of the show the night it comes out in 20 years yeah it's been a long time and you know sometimes I see some reruns on and I'll watch a little bit like pay attention sort of and I'm not really care what goes on but so those classic episodes though if I see one of those sort of just randomly come on you know pick a channel here uh yeah I I, I I'm, I'm sucked in every time because I'm like it's just like I, I, I don't know what it is about it, but it's just, it's just such, such great TV. Well, please keep quoting it in the newsroom. I can do that for you, Mike. Craig Needles <laughs> here in studio with us. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Mike.
All right. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can give us a call, 519-643-2222. We'll keep a running tally throughout the show today as to what the best episode is. Marilyn, we've got 60 seconds before our next guest. Do you watch The Simpsons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a very clever show. Okay. What's your favorite episode? Uh, Let me see. Um, Golly. There was one there that uh, must have been when Homer was head of the union. Yeah, that's the one Craig was just talking about. He says that is the episode. That's the one to watch. Last exit to Springfield. Well, I I had my grandson here when, oh, he'd be about eight years old. I had him here overnight, and it was a Simpsons marathon on. Oh, he just, my grandson knows all the Simpsons, knows everything about them. He's a real Simpsons fan. I think it's very clever. And, uh, you know, I don't like it when they uh, mock God, you know, when they, uh, you know. And they uh, do, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. It, it has, I don't like But that. they're not afraid to push the envelope on those things, which probably makes one of the reasons why they're still around. Marilyn, we got to run. Great talking with you. We'll talk again this week. Okay, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Heather says the Jockeys episode. Keep those coming. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We have a couple of things happening at the London International Airport Authority. And joining us to talk about both of them is Mike Seabrook, who is their president and CEO. Mike, how are things? Actually, a good day for us, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Well, congratulations on the swoop kickoff. At the same time, we do have to talk about Air Canada and a flight to Calgary so that we all understand. I'm going to give you the call here. What one do you want to talk about first? Well, why don't we start? Let's start with swoop, Mike. Okay, let's start with Swoop. We have heard about Swoop coming. We know Abbotsford, Edmonton, Halifax. What else do we need to know? Well, yeah, so today, uh, actually yesterday was the officially the first flight. We're commemorating it uh, or celebrating it today. But Swoop is starting daily service to Edmonton. Uh, we had 140 people go out yesterday and 120 uh, come back in. We've got a similar, similarly a good load for today. But uh, And then the end of May, they add daily service to Abbotsford, which is the bedroom community to Vancouver, and Halifax. So it's really, you know, we're... We're trying to become the regional gateway in southern Ontario and, and get more nonstop flights to destinations throughout Canada and U.S., and Swoop's a perfect fit for our marketplace. It's, it's got lower fares, a lower cost structure uh, as an operating airline, uh, which allows it to bring down fares. It stimulates people to travel that maybe wouldn't in the past, so it's a perfect fit for our airport. Okay, let's, let's look at low-cost airlines, because we hear that term a lot. What typically does that mean if we're going to compare them to something that is not a low-cost airline? Yeah, well, a low-cost airline, I mean, typically a low-cost airline has a, a kind of a model that they employ. They use one aircraft type. In the, in the case of Swoop, it's a 737-800. They fly to secondary airports that are that are generally less expensive to operate in, and they can get their aircraft in and out of quicker. So you can imagine uh, in London, we can turn an aircraft. Uh, so the arrival from Edmonton can land, the uh, travelers can get off, and then they, we can reboard the aircraft, uh, and then the aircraft can head back to Edmonton. They can do all that in about 50 minutes, 45, 50 minutes. You get into Pearson or Montreal and Vancouver, and the aircraft may be in there an hour and a half or two hours before it can and get out. So there's efficiencies in that. And there's also, um, they don't have loyalty programs typically, so Air Canada has their aeroplan that a lot of people accumulate points on. Ultra-low-cost carriers don't in, uh, don't have those loyalty programs. They pass on um, 
well, the savings that you incur in the fair doesn't allow them to, to have those type of programs. So they're a much leaner operation, really, Mike. I mean, their cost of fuel, cost of acquiring the aircraft are relatively similar, but um, those the reasons I just mentioned a second ago are are part of the explanation why they can get costs a little bit lower. Mike Seabrook with us. It is a big day as it is a, a commemorative flight. Is that what you guys are calling it? Well, so, yeah, it's a celebration. We always try to mark a new service with some fanfare, and today's no exception. Okay, fantastic. Swoop out to Edmonton, and then coming from Edmonton, Mike is the president and CEO of the London International Airport. When it comes to things like luggage, is there a big difference in a low-cost airline as to how luggage is handled? Yeah, well, uh, yes. Um, I mean, this is one thing that all all travelers and potential passengers have to be aware of, that each airline has a slightly different model. So with an ultra-low-cost carrier, you buy your airfare to the destination. So let's say it's $100 to Halifax. If you want to check bags or carry-on bags or you want to reserve a seat in advance beside your spouse or a friend, there is there's charges surcharges for those additional services um and it's all explained on the website and when you book but you do have to be aware of that that uh, it's a base fare and then you add on to that but regardless of that it still provides a less expensive option okay so we kick off flights to edmonton abbotsford is coming when does halifax join the mix uh, it's end of uh, end of May, so both um, Abbotsford and and Halifax start. I, I believe it's May twenty sixth. And then, typically, what would an airline do? Would they look at how those flights are going, and then maybe say, "Hey, you know, Mike, we see that you've got a lot of people going out, a lot of people coming in. We're yeah. thinking that this destination might work well for you." Does it kind of happen like that? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, we're able to. I mean, in Canada, it, it's not that complicated because there's only so many um, large cities, uh, you know, and tourist destinations. But really, Mike, that's what it comes down to. What are the potential markets, and then they look at how well they're existing service that they've started is doing in your marketplace and what the effect has been. And, um, you know, one of the things we are really encouraged by in London is we sit in kind of in the middle of southwestern Ontario with uncongested roads and a population of about 2 million, which is plenty of population to support a lot more services than we have today. So yesterday when I was down uh, with the first flight, there's people from Owen Sound, from Windsor. Uh, there was one gentleman from Burlington, believe it or not, that was on Swoop's first flight. So we want to be that regional kind of gateway in southwestern Ontario, and Swoop is a uh, excellent addition to our services that allow us to do that for sure. Outstanding. Okay, well, we do have to talk about Air Canada and a flight from London to Calgary. What do we need to know about this? Well, you know, this is a double-edged sword, I guess, of, uh, of uh, airport management. But uh, we did have Air Canada Rouge uh, announced about two months ago that they were going to do daily flights to, um, to to Calgary from London, which was going to be another uh, great addition to our services here. Unfortunately, we were informed about a week ago by Air Canada that because of the the issue with 737 Max and the Air Canada has 24 of these aircraft that they've been they're out of service right now and they're you know pending a resolution from uh, from Boeing and the Transport Canada and the FAA about uh, a fix for the problem they're down in fleet uh those 24 aircraft and so what Air Canada has had to do was look at new routes that they announced and uh, and unfortunately delay the uh, the start of those so what they've told us they were going to do a summer program this summer which began the end of June and ran to to after labor day 
they are not going to do that this summer for that reason, and uh, they have full intentions of starting it again next year in 2020 once the the max problem is uh, is is uh, is rectified. So, a little bit disappointing, but you know it's the ebbs and flows of the aviation world, and you know we still got a lot of new service to support. So, we'll we'll lick our wounds on that one and keep going. And that has a lot to do with Air Max and figuring out how to make those planes what they need to be. Is that it? Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. There, there. I mean, if if a carrier like Air Canada takes 24 aircraft out of their fleet and all the maxes are grounded uh, right now, that it really does limit them. I mean, they, they, in a, in a perfect world, airlines are flying their aircraft, you know, as much as they can because when they're flying, they're producing revenue and profitability. So they don't like aircraft sitting around. So for that reason, they don't have a lot of extra aircraft. So when you take 24 out of the equation, um, like it's happened with the max. They just don't have the capability to uh, to keep the existing or their planned schedule. Uh, they have to make adjustments, and fortunately, we got caught in that. Okay. Well, any idea as to when you might find out more on that, or is that just one of those things that they say, hey, we've got to handle this, and we'll get back to you in the future? Yeah, that's really what it came down to. I mean, they told us uh, when we were talking to them that uh they were definitely uh, going to do it in the summer of 2020. So we'd like them to do it earlier than that. But we'll just, you know, like the uh, everybody else in the marketplace, we'll pay attention to what uh, what takes place with the Max, and hopefully uh, in the coming months it can get reinstated and they can get back to to normal business, and we can uh, we can plan on some new flights out of London. Sounds good. Well, you already have new flights that technically started yesterday, being celebrated today. More to add with Swoop as the month rolls along. Mike, thanks so much for the time. All right, great. Great to talk to you, Mike. Great to talk to you. Mike Seabrook, President and CEO of the London International Airport Authority, getting us caught up on what is happening there, both good and uh, hopefully will be good in the future. If someone had never seen a single episode of The Simpsons, what one would you tell them to watch first? We have more answers to that, and we also have a pretty tough issue to deal with, but I have a question about it. We're going to get to it in 10 minutes or so from now, and that is if we hear that 7,000 people have made use of assisted dying in the last three years, is that a big number? We'll ask. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Roughly 7,000 people have received medically assisted deaths since it became legal in Canada three years ago. Is that a lot? It's a fairly big number. It's 1% of all deaths in Canada. But is it a lot? We'll ask that question in just a little bit. The other question we have been asking on London Live this afternoon deals with The Simpsons. Here's the story in a nutshell. I was eavesdropping this morning. I was sitting there. There was a great conversation going on about The Simpsons. And then Jess Brady, who you can hear... Every weekday morning from 5.30 until 9, I happen to say her mom has never seen an episode of The Simpsons. And that turned into, well, if that's the case, what would be the first episode someone who had never seen The Simpsons should watch? Uh, we've got a whole bunch for Last Exit to Springfield. That was the one that Craig Needles had mentioned. Uh, Craig also said Homer goes to college. Here's some of the latest ones. Darcy says, I love Lisa. I think that's the one where Ralph Wiggum falls in love with Lisa. I choo-choo choose you. Uh, Jay seconded the last exit. Matt says Homer at the bat. That's the softball one. Uh, Andy said last night. Rob says Bart the lover. 
Not even sure which one that is. And Nick says, any episode, season two to nine. There's a very, very interesting connection between 980 CFPL and The Simpsons. You may know it, but you may not. And if you don't, well, guess what? We have brought in the man who is responsible for that connection. And now, the winner is... Devin Peacock! I can finally get my suspenders buckled. Looks like we got a feud with the Peacocks now. Uh-huh. That is from an actual episode of The Simpsons in season 24, I believe. Season 24, episode 12, Love is a Many Splintered Thing. Devin Peacock, who you hear on 980C FPL, who you hear on FM 96, and who is an executive director and executive producer here at 980C FPL, joins us. You have a character that is, that's that's not a coincidence, that's not somebody making up that name, that's named after you. The 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 Devin Peacock uh, character on The Simpsons is named after me. It's not like a you know, hey hey, that guy's got the same name as me. No, it's named after me, and the I I am the inspiration for the character. This is amazing. Okay, how did this happen? So it was uh, done by uh, Tim Long, who's uh, from Exeter, and uh, Tim was actually uh, recently uh, back in town visiting uh, family. And uh, he and he wrote last night's episode that uh, people are talking about as well. He is obviously Canadian, and uh, way back in the day, he would uh, come back to London, and uh, he was involved with the uh, Canadian Comedy Awards, and got to know him a little bit just through uh, his his participation with that. The Comedy Awards were always in London, and then when I got my own show, I would have him on because I love The Simpsons, and I wanted to talk about The Simpsons. And he was a local guy, and he said, "Sure." And so he said uh, during one interview, you know, Devin Peacock is a really interesting name. I think it'd be neat if uh, well, there was a character on The Simpsons named Devin Peacock who came on for 10 seconds and then walked right off. And that was it. <laughs> and so that clip is uh, Devin Peacock uh, winning the Hillbilly Contest in uh, season 12, episode uh, 12. Now, did he give you any kind of heads up that this was happening and who the character was? He did not. So he, and he did it on purpose. He's, he wanted to see just, you know, what the reaction would be. And uh, sure enough, like I, I was actually watching the episode when it was on, but I, I flicked away just for a, a few moments because something else was on at the time. And then it aired, and then I started getting messages from people saying, hey, uh, did you know there was like a Devin Peacock that was just, on the Simpsons. And, uh, so I, I saw it on delay and got a clip of it almost immediately. And I emailed him and he said, yeah, I wanted to see, uh, it, that's, you know, that's, that's our whole idea that we talked about. And, uh, I wanted to see if you kind of noticed and, uh, I noticed and a lot of people noticed. So when you hear Devin with Taz and Jim on FM 96 and you hear that intro, that's where that's coming from. That's where it came from. Season 12, uh, sorry, season 24, episode 12. Devin Peacock's connection to The Simpsons. Devin, thanks for this. Thank you. So that is your favorite episode, I imagine. Uh, that is 100% my favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> season 24, episode Episode 12, 12, Love is a Many Splintered Thing. Love is a Many Splintered Thing. We've added it to the list. Devin, have a great afternoon. I can't. <laughs> Uh, not after hearing that clip once again. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Up next, we have to figure out whether 7,000 medically assisted deaths in this country is a lot? Not a lot? It's been three years since the legislation made it okay. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. 
We will have more on The Simpsons as the show continues. If someone had never seen it and you wanted to put them in front of one episode to show them, hey, this is the brilliance of The Simpsons, what would it be? Email Mike at 980CFPL.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. We had Health Canada come out with some statistics in their fourth and final interim report looking at data from provincial governments And all of it deals with medically assisted deaths and the number that there have been. Now, in this fourth and final interim report, we have the number at 6,749. That's like saying you just won $2.75 billion. You can't, I can't get my head around that. I have no idea how many that is. 6,749. Is that a lot? It represents... Roughly 1% of all deaths in Canada. To help us understand this and talk a little bit more about medically assisted dying, we would like to welcome Shanaz Gokul to London Live, the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Shanaz, how's Monday going? Monday's going well. Busy as always. (laughs) No doubt. We have seen a report that has been put together by Health Canada. And we went over the numbers before the commercial break. 6,749 people have received medically assisted deaths since medically assisted dying or legally assisted dying came into being three years ago in this country. If you look at those numbers, what do they say to you? Well, the first thing um, that they say is that the report um, doesn't include all the provinces and territories. So they're not completely accurate. Um, we don't have a, a complete data set um, at this point. But the next step, the government um, has introduced more rigorous reporting. Uh, and so the next set of reports, I think, will um, be much more fulsome. But in terms of um, you know the total number um, that's indicated in this report of uh, just a little over 6,500 uh, people, I think falls in line um, with what we would you know what we would expect. Uh, especially when you look at other jurisdictions, the numbers can be anywhere from 1% um, to even up to 5% of um, the total deaths uh, in a year for that jurisdiction. And so I think Canada is definitely over 1%, um, but when we get more fulsome data, we'll have a better sense of where we actually are. Okay, because right now that 6,749 or, or whatever it happens to be now that the report has come out and, and some time has passed, that signifies about 1% of deaths in Canada. So you're thinking it could be just a little bit more than that. Well, right. And the other thing to keep in mind is that signals that 6,749 number is since December of 2015. Um, because Quebec introduced legislation in 2015. So it's the total number um, up to October 31st, 2018. Uh, So I think when we look on a yearly basis, 2016 is going to be under 1% for total deaths and um, in comparison to the total number of assisted deaths. 2017, the percentage uh, is going to rise. 2018, I'm pretty sure we're well over 1% um, in 2018, and then we'll see what 2019 looks like. Shanaz Gokul joining us, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Shanaz, what do you feel has happened in the three years that have passed since legalized assisted dying has come into being in Canada? Has there been much of a change in, in attitudes or much of a change in the number of people exploring this as a potential option? Yeah, you know, I think that perhaps the, the most... Um 
you know, the greatest uh, thing that we've seen, and it's a little bit sort of harder to, to get at when you just look at a report and, and you look at numbers, um, but the long-lasting legacy of the Supreme Court's decision in Carter uh, has really been an opening up of safe spaces. Yes, you know, to have discussions around assisted dying, but more so to have discussions around death and dying. Uh, and I think that cultural shift um, is enormous and will continue to sort of pave the way on a whole range of end-of-life uh, issues, including assisted dying. And I think one of the things that the report in particular, if I can go back to that for a moment, that really indicates is that there continues to be, you know, for the people, um, you know, the over 6,000 people that have been able to have an assisted death, um, you know, wonderful for them and their families that they were able to find relief of their intolerable suffering. But the report tells us that the two top reasons um, that people aren't able to fulfill a request for medical assistance in dying is, one, they lost capacity before they were able to have the assisted death, and you have to be able to consent just prior to receiving medical assistance in dying, and two, um, because the person didn't fit the last criteria and the eligibility criteria in the law, that their natural death had become reasonably foreseeable. And so while, you know, the legislation has brought comfort to thousands of people, we also know that there are thousands of other people who aren't able to access an assisted death, and we continue to press for rules that don't discriminate against groups of people because of their age, um, their medical condition, or the precariousness of their medical condition that might cause them to lose um, capacity uh, before they're able to have the assisted death. Shanaz, you mentioned the conversation, and conversations can come up for so many different things. Not long ago, it was Organ Donation Month, and it was have that conversation with your loved ones so that they know what it is that you want. When it comes to something like medically assisted dying, what sorts of things do you have to do to ensure that you have your wishes laid out? Yeah, it's a really good question, and sometimes the uh, the answer to that is I start off with it depends. But generally speaking, you know, people uh, should uh, check in with their with their doctors, um, their family doctors, and see if this is something um, they're comfortable um, assessing or even providing medical assistance in dying. A person needs to have two independent clinicians, a doctor or a nurse practitioner, confirm that they meet the eligibility criteria, and one of them will likely provide the assisted death. In order to make the request, it has to be made in writing, and it has to um, be witnessed when the person makes the request and signs um, uh, the request form. Um, it has to be witnessed by two independent uh, witnesses. Uh, sometimes that's a bit tricky um, and, you know, in terms of finding uh, people to act in that role. It's the only health care in the country that requires um, two independent witnesses, and organization has a, um, a national volunteer independent witness program uh, because for some people it's a real barrier to access. And once the request form is signed, generally speaking, if the person um, is eligible for an assisted death, there's a 10-day waiting period. However, the law is quite clear that should that person be at risk of losing capacity or imminently dying, that 10-day waiting period in whole or in part can can be waived and a person can um, have uh, an assisted death sooner than later. Uh, so there's a lot of pieces uh, that sort of have to fall into place. And for some people, um, especially people in urban centers that may have family doctors, um, navigating through it may may be a little bit more straightforward. But for many people, uh, and we know this because we have a personal support program and we do uh, patient navigation for medical assistance in dying, there are a number of obstacles 
obstacles and barriers along the way. And one of the things that this fourth interim report from Health Canada indicates is that there are still, you know, over 50% of all deaths are happening in hospitals or other publicly funded healthcare facilities. Um, and when those facilities force people to transfer out um, to have the assisted death, there's all sorts of harms that can happen. So, you know, depending where you're, you know, you're living and the environment, if you're living at home or if you're living um, in a long-term care uh, home, there are a number of things um, that, that may impact where you can have the assisted death. And we really encourage people as much as possible um, you know, have these discussions with their, their health care providers even before they think they're eligible for an assisted death, um, but just so that they sort of know, you know, what that roadmap is going to look like for them in their, you know, unique health um, circumstances. And it could be unique because of geography. It could be unique, um, you know, because of uh, not even having a family doctor. And so, you know, the earlier that people can begin having these uh, conversations, the more they can help um, plan and, and prepare. And, and I would say, you know, Mike, that we want to encourage people to do that for their health care in general. Last month, April, was Advanced Care Planning. Um, there was Advanced Care Planning Day. I think it was April 16th. We sort of made a month of it, um, really encouraging people to understand who's going to be making decisions for you if you can't make them yourself. Um, this does not apply to assisted dying. You, you can't use an advanced directive for that. But the thinking around, you know, planning for these things and then thinking about, well, I have capacity, I'm, I'm interested and I'm worried um, if suffering becomes uh, intolerable, you know, having those conversations with your doctors and, and nurses, social workers, you know, friends and family early on can really help people prepare um, for that time in their life, which is inevitable for all of us. Shanaz Gokul joining us, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, as we look Number one, at the fourth and final interim report from Health Canada that shows we've had 6,749 people who have received medically assisted deaths, as Shanaz pointed out. That doesn't include the entire country, and obviously when report numbers stop, well, other numbers are still coming in, so expect it to be a little bit higher than that. It may sound strange that you're saying, have this conversation with your family doctor. That's, that's really the starting point for a lot of people? Well, I mean, it does rely on doctors and nurse practitioners. So, yeah, I, I say have the conversation um, uh, to sort of to be aware of what all your options are um, and what their comfort level is should you decide to pursue an assisted death. If they're not able to assess you, then you're going to need help finding um, another clinician who, who will. Um, but absolutely, you know, I think that we, we want to encourage people to have conversations with people who are providing us with our direct health care, um, as well as with our family and, you know, our friends and people in our, our networks of support. Um, it's a critical part of this process because the only people that can provide an assisted death in Canada are doctors and nurse practitioners. So that conversation remains incredibly important um, for assisted dying, but for end-of-life uh, health care as well. All right. Well, Shanaz, thank you so much for talking about this with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Mike. Shanaz Gokul, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. So as she says, those numbers are already growing, but just the fact that all of this is taking place gives you that opportunity to have a conversation. Let's take a break. Coming up, 
We are going to let you know what's ahead in hour number two. Recycling is a part of it. BRT, which will sound like a recycled conversation, but hopefully is not, is going to be a part of it. And we'll also talk about what a couple of Londoners are up to in the OHL playoffs. It's been amazing. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Do you recycle? Oh, that's a silly question. What do you mean, do I recycle? Of course. Everybody recycles. Okay. Where's your recycling go? Well, it goes to a place where they recycle it, turn it into new things, keep our planet alive. Uh-huh. Okay, that's, yeah, that's the idea. That's, that's the attraction. Is that what's happening? Global News has a new three-part series. It begins tonight on Global National. You can even read part of it now at globalnews.ca. We're going to check in on that because what we believe is taking place and what is taking place has changed. Used to be exactly like what you think. Now, not so much. What about BRT? That has changed. Do we even know what it's changed to? We're going to try and figure that one out this next hour. And we'll talk about a couple of London guys, Nick Suzuki and Isaac Ratcliffe, and what they have a chance to do tonight as the Guelph Storm try to do something that's never been done before. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. We'll talk recycling in just a couple of minutes. Here is a question we've been asking throughout the show, and we keep getting more answers to it. If you have not submitted your answer, please help us out. We've got a good long list. If someone had never seen a single episode of The Simpsons, what episode would you tell them to watch first? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. We've got a lot of them ticked off. Uh, last exit to Springfield was kind of where it all started. Flaming Mo Jude sent that one in. Uh, Chris and Matt both said Homer at the bat. Uh, a few more last exits to Springfield. Darcy says, I love Lisa. Rob said Bart the Lover. Andy actually pointed to Last Night, which had all of the Canadian references to it. Uh, Nick says any episode from season two to nine will cover it off. So let us know what you would say is the episode to watch in The Simpsons. Oh, we also had Mr. Plow, and we've also had the monorail. Best songs. Or there's the Quickie Mart song, right? Who Needs a Bricky Mart? Uh, that one. Uh, I don't even know what episode that is. I don't know which one is Bart the Lover either. Rob, I don't, I don't know that one. Uh, call in with your idea as to which would be the show to watch. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980CFPL or you can tweet at Stubbs980 and let us know. We're going to talk BRT a little later on. And we're going to just strip this down to the basics again. Because if I asked you this question, can you describe BRT to me? The BRT that is going before the Ministry of Transportation? Go ahead. Right now. Chop, chop. Yeah, uh, west. Uh, I think there's going to be an interchange. Uh, No, we... Where do we sit? We have had so many incarnations of this. So we're going to try and lay it out so that we all understand where it all sits. And we'll go from there. We are also going to talk with Larry Malott, who's the voice of the Guelph Storm. The Storm are going to be playing for their lives for the seventh time in the playoffs this year. 
They're 6-0 and when playing for their lives. They did it four times against the London Knights, and they have done it twice already against the Saginaw Spirit. One more win, and the Guelph Storm make it to the OHL Championship Series. And they are being led offensively by two Londoners, Nick Suzuki and Isaac Ratcliffe. And if you didn't see the story this past weekend, Nick Suzuki scored a goal that saw him spin past a defender and roof a backhand. It was an amazing goal. He leads all OHLers in playoff scoring. He's got 30 points in 17 games. He's been brilliant. And at that game where he made that move was Montreal Canadiens general manager Mark Bergevin. He didn't know, but Mark Bergevin... Probably impressed by what he's been seeing from Londoner Nick Suzuki. So we'll talk about that a little later on. want to draw your attention to something right now. And we are going to discuss it. And that happens to be a three-part series that looks into Canada's recycling industry. And you're going to find it on Global National. So go ahead and watch Global National tonight. You'll be able to see part one. But you can also find it at globalnews.ca right now and at 980cfpl.ca right now. Environmental groups have been talking about how much recycling we should do, right? And we've been hearing numbers like, hey, 85% of plastics should be recycled by the year 2025. Go ahead. Okay, well, if that were to become a thing, we have to also know where the recycling is going. Where is it headed? And we're lucky enough to have Carolyn Jarvis, who is the chief investigative reporter for Global News, who was able to go out and take a look at what happens beyond our blue boxes, right? Jay Stanford with the City of London always has a great line. If you have a number of garbage containers in your home, think about your house. Do you have in the bathroom, do you have a little little garbage And maybe in the bedroom you've got one. Definitely under the sink you probably have one. Here's what Jay has been saying for years. What if we turn those receptacles into recycling bins? And then out in the garage or just outside or in the basement or wherever you happen to keep it by the front door where you have your recycling, where you have your blue bins, that's where your garbage would be. So that you're actually doing more recycling than you are anything else because things like toilet paper rolls, they're recyclable. So that's the mindset that has been kind of pushed toward us for years now, decades now. Think back to the early 90s. That's when they came out with reduce, reuse, recycle and the three R's and off we went. And since then, we have seen a growth in the industry. But lately, things are a little bit different. Everybody's still recycling. But you've probably seen pictures of big piles of plastic. Where are they going? We had the Philippines say to us just last week, look, we'll declare war unless you get your garbage out of here. I don't know how much of that was originally recycling, but we've run into some issues in that China decided we don't want to be the dumping ground of the world anymore. So we're going to put a stop to that. And now we don't necessarily have as many places to put things. We don't have as many people who want our recycling, do we? And what kind of a problem is that presenting? Well, that's what we're going to get to right now as we talk with Carolyn Jarvis, who, again, is the chief investigative reporter with Global News. The first of a three-part series on recycling in Canada is out. And just to give you at least a bit of a hint as to where this is headed, 
It's asking the question, is recycling in Canada broken? Please welcome Carolyn Jarvis to the show. Carolyn, thank you for joining us today on London Live. Oh, actually, we haven't been able to make contact with Carolyn. So you know what? What I will do is take a quick break, and we'll sort that out. And then when we come back, we will talk with Carolyn Jarvis. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Recycling in Canada. Broken? Well, because there's a three-part series, you might wonder, maybe it's a little dented. Maybe we've got a problem or two. So we're going to figure out exactly what the issues are, and you're going to be able to see this as part of a three-part series on Global National. Because if there is an issue and we've got to fix it, then we've got where to go. The the federal government, the provincial government, industry, who is responsible for this? Well, that's one of the issues that we will get to. We are now joined by Carolyn Jarvis, who is the chief investigative reporter with Global News. Carolyn, thanks again for joining us on London Live. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about where we do sit as a country, and we're going to be able to get right specific as to where we sit in this area. When it comes to recycling, all of us put everything in our boxes, and sometimes we have blue boxes and gray boxes, and we have green (laughs) bins, and it looks like we're doing great things when we take our stuff out to the curb. Uh, What can you tell us about where that stuff goes once it leaves the curb? Well, some of it is being recycled. Some of it is going to an end game of which, which is exactly in, as intended. However, uh, there is an increasing percentage of stuff that you put in your blue bin that's just simply ending up in a landfill. In fact, the way that they measure it at a recycling facility is with what's called the residual rate. It's a confusing term to essentially quantify how much is left over. How much do they receive at a recycling plant? that is really just going to a landfill at the end of the day. And so if you take, for example, the Blue Water Recycling Association plant that is in uh, Huron Park, just outside of Exeter in your neighborhood, they used to have historically around a 6% residual rate of leftover. And now it's hovering uh, 10 points higher, anywhere between 16 and 18%. And and that's low by contrast to many others. Toronto's is around 30, 30%. So, you know, Blue Water Recycling is doing a great job there. But what that's an indicator of is that they don't have buyers for the products that once came in that a year ago people were paying money for. They just can't take everything they used to, and they've had to reduce what's accepted in the blue bin in their case. If we think back in time, China decided to make some changes a little while ago. How much impact is that having on what you're talking about? Oh, it's huge. That was the turning point. China said January 1st, 2018, we don't want the world's trash anymore because really we were sending them a lot of dirty recycling, some good quality product and a lot of crap mixed in it, if I can be blunt. Um, And then what happened was is the rest of the Asian markets opened up and said, well, I'll take a little bit or I'll take some. Malaysia was a big destination. India became a big destination. And little by little over the course of the last 15, 16 months, those countries have said, whoa, we don't have the capacity of this. I mean, humans globally are making so much waste with the packaging they consume that it is too great for any nation to swallow up, let alone a cluster of nations in the Southeast Asia um, area. So even India said, we don't want your plastics. And India is, you know, a giant in terms of manufacturing and processing capability. So what's happened is North Americans have to look inward to say, where are we actually going to send this? 
And the answer in some cases is no better than landfill or incinerators. In the U.S., in some cities, they have literally canceled recycling programs. We haven't seen that happen yet in Canada, but we have seen recycling plants shut down in Quebec. We've seen the government of Quebec offer $100 million in bailout for that, that industry. We've seen places in Alberta say we have to accept less than our blue bin. We've seen places in Saskatchewan stockpiling hundreds and hundreds of bales of plastic because they can't get rid of it. I mean, th- this industry is really an industry in crisis and on its knees. We're talking with Carolyn Jarvis, Chief Investigative Reporter for Global News. And there is the first of a three-part series, which you can find at globalnews.ca. You can find it at 980cfpl.ca. And it basically asks the question, is Canada's recycling industry broken? Carolyn, is it we're waiting for new businesses to start up, to start saying we want to take this? Or is that just too easy? There's a number of things that could help alleviate some of the pressure in this industry. And we explore that through the course of what is a a three-part series we're rolling out at globalnews.ca and on Global National. Uh, On Wednesday, we really look at what the possible solutions might be. You know, one of them might be the government of Canada coming in, like the European Union did just recently, saying we're going to ban single-use plastic. So anything that doesn't get recycled really just gets thrown into the trash, as we're seeing a lot of single-use plastic in Canada does. We're going to ban in this country. We could do that here. We haven't. There was a private member's bill to move in that direction, but it would need government support, and there's no indication that's going to happen yet. We could also regulate how much recycled content goes into the packaging that's used in Canada. That would change this overnight, so say industry experts, meaning if when you're making a, uh, in the package for anything, your cereal box, you know, your CD-ROM driver, a thumb drive, or you know, your bottle of shampoo, if you say that that container has to contain... 30, uh, 25%, 10%, no matter, uh, recycled content, then all of a sudden there would be buyers for this stuff. But right now, we don't have those requirements, and so it's not happening. And that would take new legislation. Like you say, it could happen overnight, but are you hearing any kind of a rumble that anybody's even talking about doing something like that? A lot of finger pointing. I mean, this happened in California, which, keep in mind, is a population the size of Canada, and it changed things dramatically. In fact, there are processors... Um, you know, there's one just outside of Stratford and Listowel, um, again, not far from you, that takes plastics. And they said they could expand, even if they got an inkling that there was going to be a requirement for uh, recycled content and packaging, they could expand right away and take way more plastics to be processed and used in new packaging if they knew the demand was there. They send 70% of their stuff down to California because there's a market for it there, and the government legislated it there. When we asked people in positions of power in Canada whether we would even contemplate something here, we got a lot of finger-pointing. So the government of Canada said it's up to industry, and the government of Ontario said it's up to the feds. <laughs> you know, at some point, somebody's got to take hold of the reins and say, hey, we're clogging up our oceans and we're polluting our landfills and we're using excessive packaging. I do agree that, you know, the industry has got a huge role to play here in just cutting down on the packaging that they use, but sometimes push has to come to shove. We're talking with Carolyn Jarvis, Chief Investigative Reporter with Global News, three-part series on Global National. You can also read about it, see it at globalnews.ca. Carolyn, one last thing. You went into this, obviously, having done a whole lot of research. Coming out of it, how surprised were you? How did maybe your, your attitude toward this shift? What happened? It was an 
you know, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, even myself, I put I have a, a an overflowing blue bin and and less garbage, and I really thought that I was being a great global citizen. Is the truth. And uh, it's not until you spend a lot of time inside these recycling facilities that you realize how much is actually going is being thrown out. My husband says to me every day now before he puts it in the blue bin, recycle the trash. And I say, well, it's just trash. You know, they can fool us into saying it's being recycled. But at the end of the day, if nobody's buying it, if there's no market for these products, they just end up in a landfill. And so we need to recalibrate how we think about recycling and the products that we're using and the demands we put on companies to use responsible packaging because the shift is not happening quick enough and we continue to add to those landfills. Carolyn, great stuff. Thank you for doing this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That is the chief investigative reporter for Global News, Carolyn Jarvis, on the first of a three-part series on recycling in Canada. You can find it. At 980cfpl.ca, you can see this on Global National as well. So the first part is out, and it does take a look at something happening out west. And you will get pictures of these big plastic piles. And there's no other way to describe it either than big plastic piles. And that's something that, you know, you, you have to look at and say... This has to have a home. Ultimately, that home may not exist anymore because you do have those changes in China. And you take a look at the breakdown of things over a little while. And if you go back to 2016, you had China taking almost a quarter of what was being produced in plastics. Now they're down to just this little tiny sliver Now, Vietnam and Malaysia and Hong Kong, well, actually, Hong Kong's kind of, you know, dropped themselves down a little bit. So Vietnam and Malaysia and Thailand, Thailand's another one, they've kind of jumped in in a bigger way, but it's not really making up what we saw from China. And in fact, the United States now picks up about three-quarters of our plastics. As far as paper goes, China used to be well over half. Now it's at about a quarter. And the other part of this that you've got to keep in mind is creating plastic. You know what goes into creating plastic? You would say, okay, well, oil. The oil industry does. Crude oil. Uh, Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Not all of it. Natural gas is another thing that goes into creating plastics. And think about all the plastic that we use in our world. Kind of look around yourself right now. I've got a plastic cup, plastic phone, plastic pen, plastic headphones, plastic mouse, plastic keyboard, plastic monitor. This table, I think, is wood, but it may actually be a wood plastic. So there's a lot of plastic out there. If you look at the specs on how many years of natural gas we have left, because it's a finite resource, we're down to about 90 years on Earth before, at this rate, the rate we're using it, and this you know, ballpark figure, we can't say exactly, but ballpark figure, 90 years. And I think crude oil, last projections I saw were less than that, was not 90 years. I think we're looking at you know 50-some years. So... When you look at it that way, there's a finite amount. You're not going to be able to create plastic in the same way. Now, we probably have people working away in labs right now figuring out how to do this differently. Sure. I mean, that's that's the way that we've evolved on this planet forever. When one thing stops working, 
you use a different thing. Or if you find a better way of doing something, otherwise it would be horses and buggies still. No, I got a better idea. Here's a car. Sit down. Then you turn to that. In this case, if you keep going at the rate that we're going, we'll burn up what helps us to make plastics and what helps to fuel and what helps to heat and all those sorts of things. And and then what? We're, you know, Our world's going to be a very different place in the next little while just because it has to be. <laughs> you always used to think back to people in other generations saying, uh, wouldn't want to be this next generation. When are we getting to the point where you actually wouldn't? Are we hitting that one right now where you can say, oh, this next generation, I wouldn't want to be them? Because as Carolyn pointed out, you have all the blame being finger pointed in other directions. The feds say it's this fault. They point at industry. The province points at the federal government. And just like climate change, global warming, nothing gets done. Nothing's going to be, there's, there is nothing indicating somebody's going to sit down and say, yeah, I'm going to make this happen. Because again, it's not at that point yet. We're not at a crisis. We seem to react to crises. We need something big in order to, to make it matter. Otherwise, we can just go and go about our way and do whatever it is we want to do. You need some kind of crisis. I don't know how to turn this into a crisis. Maybe, maybe watch Global National tonight and see the pictures and hear what Carolyn has to say there. Read what's at globalnews.ca right now on is recycling in Canada broken. It's basically is Canada's recycling industry broken. That's that's how they've written it down. So take a look at that and see what you think. You can always email mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at stubs980. Still to come. BRT, what does it actually look like now that it's going in front of the Ministry of Transportation? And a couple of Londoners who could do something that's never been done before. And that thing could happen tonight. News is next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Does your workplace have a wellness program? They have a health hustle in the morning. You get up, do a little jog around the office, maybe chair calisthenics, anything like that. New Harvard study that has been published in the medical journal JAMA says that they took a look at 33,000 workers and they all work for one American retail company. I don't think they've said which company it is. Actually, yes, it does. BJ's Wholesale. So that's, that's who they looked at. BJ's, we don't have that here in Canada. And they went through the wellness program that was supposed to promote stress management, nutrition, physical activity, improve everything. So they poured a lot of money into this. And they found that among the 33,000 workers, it had no clinically measurable impact whatsoever. Nobody was healthier. Nobody was particularly happier. Not a thing. So the next time your boss says, hey, let's go on a jog before we start this, you can say, yeah, there's this study I want you to read. We will come back in a moment. We'll talk about BRNT altogether, bus rapid transit, not rehashing anything because the time for hashing and rehashing is over. Public input, that's done. This is now before the Ministry of Transportation. So exactly what? is before the Ministry of Transportation. I think we need a refresher course on this. 
What exactly is out there? What will be happening if they give the green light and the checkered flag or the green flag and say go? What exactly are we going to see when the checkered flag comes? At least the first one. Well, we'll try and find that out next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Think back. Way back. And I'll call Rusty. Just think back. Anybody remember the Friendly Giant? That may have been a bad reference. What was the giraffe's name? Jerome? Not sure. Let's get off Friendly Giant and get on to BRT. Because if we do think way back, we happen to be able to go all the way back to when this was talked about as being perhaps an LRT project. Light rail. That's where it all began. And then it was thought, you know what? No. This really began, though, because the province and the federal government started to say there's going to be funding available. And if you want to use that funding, hurry, act now. And that's what we had. We had a relatively new council at that time that had been through, well, the council itself as City Hall had been through quite a change. So we had the opportunity for them to say, okay, let's look at a, a legacy project in all of this. Let's look at something that is not going to be done even while we are on council. This could be councillors of the future that would see this happen. And that's what they had to do. They had to make that decision. And they were going after $370 million in provincial and federal government funding. It was whittled down to, instead of light rail, bus rapid transit. And then it was changed to, okay, well, where should that go? Should it be from the south? Should it be from the north? There was a lot of talk about north, a lot of talk about Well, it's going to be from Masonville to the downtown. Definitely, that's the way to go. And things have been rejigged, and public information sessions have been held. We had such a big public information session, it had to be moved to Budweiser Gardens in order to accommodate it. Now, the public participation part, as we understand it, has come to a close. And this is going before the ministries. And it is up to them to say, okay, here is your green light. Let's wave the green flag. So the question is this, and see if you can answer it. What is going before the ministries? Do we we have our heads around that just yet? Well, fortunately, we have somebody who is going to be able to help us understand exactly what is happening as we take that next step forward. Jenny Ramsey is the Bus Rapid Transit Project Director here in London, Ontario, and we're lucky enough to have her with us now. Jenny, how are you? Oh, hi, Mike. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. If I was to ask that question, okay, what is going before the ministries? It's it's probably a, a big question. What do we need to know about, first off, the end of public participation? Mm-hmm. Well, our project team has been steadily advancing through the environmental assessment process, and, and we're wrapping up that study at the end of June. And so with that, it gives council a completed and approved environmental assessment study. So that means that all of the engineering work and technical studies and consultation that have gone into the project to date will give council a foundation to be able to move forward with components of the plan as prioritized by council. And so council recently decided that they were going to prioritize advancing three components of the rapid transit plan, and those are the downtown loop, the Wellington Gateway to the south, and the East London Link. Okay, so downtown loop, 
I'm remembering this now. It's bringing back, bringing back fond memories. And so that means we've got downtown, we've got to the south, and we've got to the east. So what happens with that as it now goes to other levels of government? So um, following council direction, staff has worked to put together a package to submit all the information that the provincial and federal government need to review our submission, and we're confident we've put together a, a really solid package. Okay, and are we waiting for then a, a green light, a green flag to be waved, a, a check presentation? What would be next? Well, I think um, from my role as the project leader is to really focus on the environmental assessment, getting that wrapped up, and then getting ready to move our project into detailed design and construction once we do have funding commitments. Okay. And in terms of, of getting this done, people are going to wonder, okay, what's, what's this going to mean? How much disruption for this? And can we put that into perspective yet, or do we really need to wait until we have that go sign? No, I think that we've we've already been working towards looking at what construction staging would look like and, and how we would approach this project. Uh, we've always intended to construct the project in stages. And again, as we continue into the design and the construction parts of this project, we'll continue to consult with the public. So the, the consultation isn't ending with the environmental assessment. We'll be continuing to engage throughout design and making sure the public is, is aware as we make choices on how we approach building the project. Jenny Ramsey joining us, BRT Project Director. As we kind of get our heads around where everything sits, what would it take for, you know, for the entire project to say, oh, wait, the, the public is saying this. That's actually a good idea. Let's incorporate that. How much flexibility could there be? Well, you know, it goes back to the fact that once we have a completed environmental assessment study, that's that foundation that lets us to be able to move forward. So we've always talked about staging the projects, and our team is working now to prioritize those first three elements. But that doesn't mean that we can't continue to talk about um, what the transportation needs would be for the north and the west and and continue to move forward with those um, in a very public way. Finally, what goes into the environmental assessment and, and the length that it has, has gone? Um, well, I think that it is a lengthy process, but it's a very structured process to ensure that the public can understand the processes that were involved, the information that went into it, the studying, and, and how we got to the final decision that was made. So um, we've got uh, a finished project now that we can choose which elements we want to move forward and when. So we've got those three elements, downtown, Wellington Gateway, East Link, and those are the three that are obviously moving forward. And again, timeline on environmental assessment, you said, when is that expected to be wrapped up? Um, well, we just finished the 30-day comment period, and then it goes to the province for 35 days for a final decision, and then we'll have a completed study. So. Okay, so that's what has gone to the province then? At this point, we have, uh, we've just completed that comment period. They're going to look at any comments received during that time, and then we'll conclude the uh, environmental assessment at the beginning of June. Jenny, thanks so much for keeping us up to date on this. All right, thank you. Take care. That is Jenny Ramsey, BRT Project Director. So that helps us to get our heads around it a little bit better, doesn't it? Helps me get my head around it a little bit better. It is something that has been a long time in the works, and as we go back, there were a lot of thoughts that maybe this could be completely derailed. And then one of the lines that made perfect sense was, well, we're about $11 million in. Chances of it being stopped completely? Not so much. So Downtown Loop, Wellington Gateway, East Link, those are the names that we can remember coming out of council not too long ago. Now the environmental assessment, 
wraps up, goes to the province, and then we wait for funding, and that's when the project kind of begins. And then we we look at what's happening with construction downtown right now. We'll spell that one out too, and the city will be very forthcoming as to what's going to be happening. Let's take a quick break. Up next, we'll finish off by heading to Saginaw, Michigan. A couple of Londoners have a chance to do something that's never been done before. That's next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Londoners Nick Suzuki and Isaac Radcliffe are suiting up for the Guelph Storm tonight. The Storm have faced elimination six times in the OHL playoffs, and they are 6-0. Tonight is the seventh time. They've forced a seventh game with the Saginaw Spirit. The voice of the Guelph Storm, Larry Malott, joins us to try to figure out how Guelph continues to do this. Larry, some teams don't mind a challenge, you know, doing things the hard way, but this is a whole new stratosphere. It is. It's something that's potentially never happened in the Ontario Hockey League before, Mike. There has never been a team that has come back from two two nothing series deficits to ultimately win an OHL championship, much less three nothing against London, now three one against Saginaw. If they manage to get through game seven here tonight, I know the talk in the dressing room has been, let's not do this again. <laughs> as fun as it is, yeah. Nerve-wracking, absolutely. Let's talk about how they have done this. If you go back to a little earlier in this series, in Game 2, you had a couple of suspensions handed out. One to Londoner Justin Murray for an elbow that went into the face of Mackenzie Entwistle. And then you had a suspension to Saginaw goalie Ivan Prozvitov for batting a puck out of the ice surface in into the crowd. When you look at, at what that did in the series, how much of a turning point really was that? Not much as it's turned out. And by the way, Ivan Prosbatov, I said after that game, if he doesn't make it as a goalie, has a heck of a future as a home run hitter because <laughs> he really belted that up into the stands. Uh, the, the young goaltender, uh, Cambridge native Tristan Lennox, took over and arguably played even a little better than we've seen from Prosbatov. And I'll tell you what, this, this kid is going to be a heck of a goalie. Uh, he has, through a couple of games, really kept them in. He hasn't been an issue. Uh, they've been a little bit tired-looking hockey team the last game in particular. But uh, Tristan Lennox is going to be very, very good in the future. In fact, they were kind of kidding and saying, can we get the league to take that suspension back? We'd sooner see the other guy in goal. <laughs> Larry Millard joining us, voice of the Guelph Storm. Guelph will play game seven tonight against the Saginaw Spirit. The winner will take on the Ottawa 67s in the OHL Championship Series. And like the Storm did against the Knights, they battled back against the Spirit. You mentioned the tired, the fatigue. Saginaw has some big people, but Guelph has some big people. How much of this can be attributed to wearing out the other side? Part of it has to do with size, but I, I think a, a big portion of it has to do with experience in somebody. Well, actually, Jim Parcells, who was the very first trainer for the Guelph Storm when the team moved from Hamilton to Guelph, pointed out that in the last 40 years of the Ontario Hockey League, this Guelph Storm team is the oldest team uh, to have played. They've got 12 19-year-olds in the lineup, three overagers, and I knew that ranked as one of the older teams, but uh, according to Jim, and I trust uh, the research that he's done, the oldest team in 40 years. So we're talking experience, I think, playing a big part in it. 
And that experience also extends to tonight, given that there's recent experience. The Guelph Storm played a Game 7 on the road in London. How much of that matters in a Game 7, Larry? I don't think it really matters that much. Uh, the, the Storm have shown that they can win on the road. There will probably be a full house here in Saginaw. I, I would think, if anything, the Saginaw spirit will feel the pressure a little bit more because this is new for them. The Storm will be playing elimination game number seven so far in the playoffs for them. And they are so far, if you do the math on that, 6-0 and oh in those elimination games. Larry, who has impressed you in this series on the Guelph Storm side? Boy, am I ever glad they traded for Nick Suzuki. He has been absolutely outstanding. And I don't know whether you had a chance to see the video of the one goal that uh, he scored in the last game where he did a quick little spin to beat a defenseman and backhanded it high into the net. And you just uh, think, did he just do what I think I saw him do? And he has been incredible throughout the playoffs. Dimitri Samrukov had one of the best playoff games a Storm defenseman has ever had. He had uh, three goals, and I went back and couldn't find a hat trick from a Storm defenseman in a playoff game before. Uh, but an added little bonus, Pavel Gogolev, when they acquired him from Peterborough in a trade for Ryan Merkley, looked great for four games and then broke his ankle. And he's been back in action now uh, around 20 games, I think, just towards the end of the regular season. But it's just been the last couple of games where I've seen the speed uh, that I saw out of him prior to the injury. And he was a big factor in the last one. He had a couple of goals. So that's kind of an added bonus. It gives him somebody else who all of a sudden is a little bit more dangerous than he had been earlier in the series. Larry, one last thing, and that is anyone who has been to a game and say, Erie knows that that atmosphere in the playoffs is tough to match. That is, that's a zoo. How has the atmosphere been in Saginaw for this particular series? Well, I'm impressed. It's gotten a lot better down here, and, and credit goes to uh, the owners, Craig Goslin and, and Dick Garber, and they have been very persistent about making the Ontario Hockey League work in Saginaw, and they've just started to really get some full-house type of crowds as the playoffs have progressed, so the atmosphere is great, and I expect it to be a loud, noisy building tonight. We'll see what happens. Larry, thanks so much for the time. Enjoy yourself this evening. Well, we'll see if enjoy is quite the word, but it'll uh, be another nerve-wracking experience, I'm sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Larry. Larry Malott, voice of the Guelph Storm. We'll take a break and close out the show next. This is London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We are a couple of minutes away from news with Jacqueline LaBelle. We will take you through what is coming up in the forecast. As John Wilson says earlier today, or said earlier today, there's three systems coming through in the next week, and none of them are bringing summer weather our way. So it may be a bit of a week to kind of sit in in the evening and check out some Blue Jays baseball. The hype around Vladimir Guerrero Jr., do you know how hard it is to do what he did over the weekend? Oh, wait a minute, he didn't hit five home runs or anything. No, but to be able to come in and not get kind of like a a wave in the ocean bowled over by all of this hype, and he still had great at-bats. He's hitting 250. 
has a hit in every game that he played. That was pretty impressive. The Jays are off today. They are on their way, actually, to Anaheim to take on the L.A. Angels of Anaheim in a series that starts tomorrow. So, actually, it may be a, a week to stay up a little later. I think the pregame show gets underway at 9.30 tomorrow. Later on this week, we are going to talk a little bit more about officiating. We're going to look at a company that's doing something Pretty pretty different on Wednesday, and we are also going to talk with somebody who has done some pretty amazing things in his life, and now, as a stroke survivor and someone who is dealing with other health issues, he's looking at ratcheting this up even more and plans to do a run that would leave you scratching your head if you were in his position. So we'll be talking about that as well. Congratulations to everybody over at the London International Airport. We talked earlier about Swoop and the first flight that went out yesterday. This is kind of a celebratory flight today. So we've got new destinations coming out of London. Right now, Abbotsford, B.C. Soon to come, or right now, Edmonton. Soon, Abbotsford, B.C. And then Halifax, Nova Scotia. And we've got more places to get to. And making travel a little bit more affordable in this country is something we need. We get such a great country to visit. It's just really hard to get to some of those spots in an affordable way. So I think that may be changing. Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. London Live brought to you by courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.